In the history of humankind, one act of generosity transcends all others. God loved us so much that he gave his son Jesus to us, and Jesus gave his own life for us. He did it willingly, without regrets. We could never match that demonstration of generosity, and the good news is we don't have to. But as we choose to follow Jesus, we will become more like him. Our hearts will be more open, and so will our hands. Jesse and Becca chose to follow Jesus' example in being generous. When times were scarce, they gave from open and sacrificial hearts. Here's their story. I was an assistant youth pastor, and, uh, and Becca, I think, was working at Dion's, going to school. Uh, we were newly married. We were 20, maybe 21 years old. And, uh, you know, marriage is hard. You're, you're figuring out all the dynamics, the finances and everything. I remember having to owe so much. Um, there were so many bills, and the paycheck that we were going to get, I knew was already allocated to specific bills. And I just was panicking, and it was really scary to see the next month and all that was due, having zero money and not knowing where I was going to get it from. And... Um, having to trust God anyways. And so, you know, I gave that money, I tithed it first, and and then it was kind of just like, now what? Now what do I do? You know, I'm at church and some guy randomly comes up to me, I have no idea, and he's like, hey, the Lord told me to give you this check for $200. I'm like, are you sure? Like, you don't have to do that. But I take it home to my wife after a Wednesday night service, and she just breaks down into tears and it's like, I was freaking out about the money, freaking out about tithing, not feeling like we were gonna have enough to pay these, these, the bills. There was not enough left. We got this one bill, but I decided not to call you. I decided not to freak out, and I decided to, to give and to pray and to trust the Lord. It was almost surreal to, to see how quickly God had responded to my obedience. There was just such a relief and such a, like, oh my gosh, you really do mean what you say. Um, you really do want us to have a generous heart, not only um, so that we can receive blessing, but that so, so that we can have an overflow of blessing to other people. And that's just when it clicked for me, really, that how important it was to tithe. What I do sometimes with Lion is we pull over the side of the road, we stop, we look, we listen, we look these homeless people in the eye, we go buy them gift cards you know, at Walgreens or whatever, and I tell them this, I say, you are made in God's image. And part of the gospel is that you matter to God just as much as these people who are driving by in their nice cars. Mm -hmm. and, and the goal is that we would give to the point that it reminds people of the cross. Yeah. That's the goal. The goal isn't to stop at 10%. The goal is to give in every area of life until it reminds people of Jesus. Generosity is an attitude of the heart that with practice becomes a lifestyle. Sam and his wife are training up their young children to live generously. Yeah, I have two crazy, awesome little boys. Uh, my youngest is uh, Levi, and he has no fear. He is off of the walls. And then my oldest is Bennett. Uh, he recently turned five, and he has the craziest imagination. He's, uh, they're both so fun. Um, but one thing we do with our, our boys is uh, my wife and I, you know, we, we don't really keep a lot of things. 
uh, we, we try to be minimalist as much as possible. Uh, and in doing so, it gives us opportunities to, to give, give to others. And we try to teach our boys to do the same. Uh, so just recently, uh, when Bennett turned five, uh, you know, he, he got two bags of toys from his grandparents. So we're like, okay, Bennett, uh, now you have an opportunity. You got two bags of toys. Let's give two bags of toys to other kids who, who might not have them. Uh, and he was excited. He was going through his toys and, and, and picking them out. And he was like, man, these kids are gonna love playing with these. Generosity is never something that we've regretted. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's easy either, right? It's always a challenge. So yeah, one of those moments I remember I was about to get married. I was on staff at Calvary Chapel in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was making minimum wage um, and, and just faced with the prospect of uh, starting a family. And right before uh, we were to get married, probably a couple months out, uh, my car breaks down. So I'm, I'm freaking out, right? I'm stressed. I have this, this uh, perceived burden uh, that I've placed on myself for uh, starting a family. And, and now you have a, uh, a car that breaks down, so just, just uh, problems arise. Uh, it, was, it was about that time that my pastor teaches a message about uh, generosity. Not necessarily about tithing, but just about giving. And uh, ironically, I, I think one of the things that uh, really moved me in that direction was he shared a, a quote by John uh, D. Rockefeller, who said, if I wasn't able to tithe on my first check, which was $1.50, I would not have been able to tithe my first million dollars. Right, so I was like, man, if, if he could do it, then, then I can. So it was then uh, that I was anonymously gifted uh, $3,000, right? And uh, just so happened that my boss at the time was selling his 91 Acura Legend, right? And uh, um, so I bought it from him and, and it, was, it was a blessing. Not only that, uh, but God opened some just supernatural doors for, for ministry after that. And uh, I was truly able to see that, you know, providing isn't just something God does, it's who He is. And the goal is uh, not to tithe, it's not just giving 10% of your check, it's to live by faith. Right? Because when God gets more of our heart, we get to see more of Him. Early in the pandemic, Calvary Church campuses became collection points for our kindness campaign. Thanks to your generosity, we took in over 400 curbside donations and delivered about 200 care packages to people's doorsteps right here in our community. Almost everywhere we look, people are in great need, both physically and spiritually. Around Valentine's Day, you responded to Reload Love's call to help Karen refugees as we dropped the love bomb on border communities between Burma and Thailand. Thank you for your support. We funded two church buildings and a preschool, support for three in-country evangelists, plus meeting some very specific needs for refugee pastors and people groups. When we give with open hearts and open hands, we can respond to people in times of unimaginable crisis. This summer, nearly every country in the world suffered under the spread of COVID-19. Beirut was ravaged by another crisis, an explosion that destroyed the port district, killing 160 people, injuring nearly 6,000, and immediately displacing nearly 300,000 people. You gave generously to help Samaritan's Purse and Convoy of Hope be the hands and feet of Jesus. In a year marked by stress, sickness, and scarcity, you continue to follow Jesus' example. You have willingly given without regrets. I can definitively say that I have never, ever regretted being generous to someone. I've never felt like 
um, it's caused me to bleed. It's always been good for the heart and for just to get into the habit of being generous. You know, whenever a church says we're doing a weekend of generosity, most people go, uh-oh. But what's different about here is this is truly a celebration. We're looking back at what God has done through the lives of people who stepped up to the plate during the year. And the message that I'm about to preach, I know I'm preaching to the choir in the sense that you have, through the crisis in Lebanon, through the local crisis during COVID, you have been faithful uh, to help out, and, and we are appreciative of that. We're in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you don't mind turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. As you do that, uh, I'll ask you a question. How many of you have ever thought, boy, it'd be great to win the lottery? You can be honest. Okay. So let me tell you about a guy who did win the lottery in New Jersey. Last year, he won a lottery, and his takeaway was 273 million dollars. $273 million. And I think the story even read, if I'm not mistaken, he bought a ticket and uh, the winning ticket, he didn't know it was, but he bought the ticket, left it at the store. Somebody found it, returned it to him, and uh, he won $273 million. He announced that what he would do first is buy himself a new pickup truck and a few things that he wanted. What he didn't count on was all of the court costs that he was about to pay. Because you see, a year previously, he and his wife sadly went through a divorce. But when she found out that he just won $273 million, she called him up and said, we're going back to court. Money does that. Money does that to people. One person said, having money is like grabbing an electrical wire. The more the juice, the tighter the hold. Deuteronomy chapter 15 in the Old Testament sums up God's thinking in this area. He said, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother, but be open-handed Open-handed is another way of saying be generous. I found a, an article in the Dallas Morning News that said, Christians tend to be the most generous group of donors. In the same article, it said, and of all the subgroups within Christianity, evangelicals are the most generous. Researcher George Barna has studied this for years, and he said, born-again adults remain the most generous givers in a country, that's America, that is acknowledged to be the most generous on the planet. So let's just kind of go through that. Uh, what, what they're all saying is that of all the countries in the world, we have found that Americans tend to be very generous. And Within the American population, Christians tend to be more generous. And in the Christian population, evangelical Christians tend to be the most generous. If you were to look up the word generous in the dictionary, it would tell you that its meaning is a readiness to give more than is necessary. 
If you know me or my preaching over the years, you know that I sort of shy away from talking about this subject. I, I feel uncomfortable, always have. But this morning I take my cues from Paul the Apostle, who had no problem at all dealing with the issue. In fact, he does so squarely in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Now I want to give you a little background. One of Paul's main objectives on his third missionary journey, you know that Paul took these journeys around the world. He took three of them, and then he finally took a journey to Rome where he stood trial. On his third missionary journey, one of his objectives was the collection of a financial offering for the church in Jerusalem, Judea, the mother church, sort of like foreign missions but in reverse where those who were scattered on the mission field are taking care of the original group. So he does that. And it's because they were suffering the loss of income, the loss of their jobs, extreme poverty. Um, There were a great number of them in that city. There were a number of reasons for it. So Paul takes up an offering. And um, Paul saw the Gentile churches scattered throughout the world as debtors to the church in Jerusalem. And taking up a collection was a way of paying off the debt, according to the words of Paul, in a few places. You see, in Paul's mind, he looked at it this way. The gospel came from Judea. Jesus came from that region. Salvation came from Judea. So Gentile churches who are benefiting from that need to help those who are experiencing hardship. I'm going to show you just one verse of Scripture in Romans 15. We'll put it up on the screen where Paul writes, and I'm reading in the New Living Translation here, but before I come, I must go down to Jerusalem to take a gift to the Christians there. That's what we're dealing with in this topic. For you see, the believers in Greece have eagerly taken up an offering for the Christians in Jerusalem who are going through such hard times. They were very glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the wonderful spiritual blessings of the good news from the Jewish Christians, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. They, the Gentiles, have been helped spiritually, so they, the Gentiles, should help those in Jerusalem financially. Now, the Corinthian church, we're in 2 Corinthians 8, the Corinthian church, the one Paul is writing to, apparently were not doing their part in this collection. Oh, they they said they wanted to, they started to do that uh, a year prior, but they hadn't kept their promise. And there's a reason for that. There were other issues the Corinthian church was dealing with. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, you know that it was a church racked with problems. There was division in the church. There was adultery that went unchecked in the church. There was the abuse of spiritual gifts in the church. A number of issues that just sort of gobbled up their time and their energy. So the idea of participating in this gift for the Jerusalem church was put on hold. 
Warren and Wiersbe puts it this way, when a church is not spiritual, it is not generous. That's the Corinthian problem. They were not a spiritual church, and they were not a generous church. So, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And as he writes to them, he wants to use another set of churches as an example of generous giving. Because he wants to motivate those in Corinth to do the same. What's interesting is the churches he uses as an example are Macedonian churches. Meaning the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea. Those were the Macedonian churches. So with that as a background, we begin in verse 1 in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now, what I'm going to do is confine my remarks really to the first few verses of this chapter, and I'd like to show you four qualities of generosity, four qualities of generous giving. Number one, generosity is a signal. That is, when you see a generous person, it's because something has happened in that person's heart, and the generosity is a sign of that. Now, in the text that we just read, three times, Paul refers to the generosity of the Macedonians by the word grace. He calls it a grace. I want you to notice in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we made known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Then he describes that grace. The second mention is down in verse 6. We urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound, verse 7, in everything, here's the third mention, in faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now, you've been in church long enough. You know what grace means. If I were to ask you, give me a definition of grace, I know that many of you would be able to say, I know exactly how to define grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Undeserved favor. That's the meaning of New Testament grace. But here, the idea of grace is favor shown because of favor received. That is, grace has happened to me, therefore, I want to be gracious to others. In other words, generosity is a proof that God has been working 
in grace in a person's heart. Generosity is the proof, the signal, the sign that God has been graciously working inside of a human heart simply because generosity is one of God's qualities. God is a generous God. For God so loved the world that he gave. James chapter 1 even says, God is generous to all. So, when somebody experiences the grace of God, that person becomes gracious. They've experienced grace, grace received. They want to show grace, grace dispersed or favor shown. So then generosity is sort of like the thermometer of grace. You can see uh, if a person has really experienced the grace of God in their lives by how they treat other people, how they respond to situations around them in grace. It is the thermometer of grace. It's the signal that God is at work. Now, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. All of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, two chapters in 2 Corinthians alone, Paul is talking about this offering. So that's quite a bit of literary real estate that he's devoting to this issue. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. On top of that, he mentions the same offering in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in Galatians chapter 2, and uh, Luke writes about Paul taking this offering in Acts chapters 11 and 24. All of that to say, this was on Paul's heart a lot. And he speaks about it a lot. In fact, I I made a discovery uh, some years ago that I wasn't expecting to make uh, in my reading through the Scriptures, and that is money is an important topic in the Bible. It is mentioned a lot. Now, granted, it's not mentioned as much as some preachers mention giving, but it certainly mentions it more than I had been comfortable mentioning it. In fact, I discovered that money is the main subject of over half of the parables that are recorded that Jesus ever taught. Here's the number. Of the 29 recorded parables of Jesus in the New Testament, 16 of the 29 deal with a person's relationship to money. It's interesting, isn't it? Over half. It is estimated that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses deals with the topic of money, and in the broader New Testament, one in every seven verses deals with this topic. On top of that, the Bible offers 500 verses on the subject of prayer, less than 500 verses on the subject of faith, but over 2,000 verses on the topic of money. Now, that should clear up an issue for some of us. And the issue is that money is not evil. And I hear people say that, you know, money is evil, filthy lucre. And they'll misquote a New Testament scripture. They'll quote it this way. Money is the root of all evil. You ever heard that before? The Bible never says that. What it says is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's the text. Well, that's very different because 
You can not have much money, but you can still have a love for it and cause all sorts of problems. So money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil. So money isn't evil. Money is neutral. It all depends on, on how you view it, and it depends on what you do with it. Abraham, Job, Joseph were very wealthy people in their time, but they were also very godly people in their time. One person put it this way, money is like manure. If you stack it up, it stinks. If you spread it around, it makes things grow. So generosity is a signal. It's a grace. It's evidence of God's grace. The second aspect is that generosity is sacrificial. And that gets to the heart of what Paul is writing here. In verse 2, speaking of the, the churches in Macedonia, he says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Now, there's a few key phrases here that shows us just what they were going through that makes their generosity so profound. First of all, he mentions a great trial of affliction. A better way to put that, in fact, a literal idea of that, is they were being crushed by life itself. They were being crushed by life. The culture was squeezing them hard. The idea, the thought of most commentators is that because of the Macedonians' faith in Jesus Christ, a lot of them lost their jobs. Many of them were kicked out of the guilds, the trade guilds that were prominent in those areas. So they were feeling life bearing down on them, crushing them. That's one phrase. Then notice the phrase, deep poverty. It's one thing to be poor, but he says deep poverty. And the word for deep is bathos. And that's sort of a Jacques Cousteau word. Any of you remember Jacques Cousteau, the, all those exploring videos? So uh, a, ba a bathosphere, a bathosphere was a, is, a, is a kind of a, a spherical-shaped um, uh, entity where you can get somebody in it or a camera in it, and you lower it down to the very depths of the ocean for exploration. That's a bathosphere. The word he uses here is bathos. It's deep poverty. It's a way of saying you are desperately poor or they are dirt poor. They are at rock bottom. So great trial of affliction and deep poverty. That's what the church in Macedonia was experiencing. Now hold that thought. Because in America, we think of poverty often in different terms. We think we fancy ourselves poor if we can't go out to dinner. We fancy ourselves poor if our credit cards are maxed out or if we can't get that new flat screen TV. You know, we measure it differently. The churches in Macedonia were experiencing deep poverty, which made their generosity all much that more notable. And notice something else in these verses that we just read. He said, according to their ability, comma, 
And then Paul says, yes, and beyond their ability. Now notice that. According to their ability, yes, they gave according to what they were able. Yes, and beyond their ability. So we learn a couple of things here, a couple of truths here. Truth number one, we are to give in proportion to what we have according to our ability. Now you need to know this. The Bible never sets a fixed amount. I get asked all the time, what is the percentage that I should give? And I never give people a straight answer. Because the New Testament does not fix, uh, set a fixed amount. It rather says you should do two things. You give according to your heart before the Lord and you give in proportion to what you have. So in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, speaking of the very same offering that he's speaking of here, he said, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So that's sort of a general principle, that we give in proportion to what we have. I've always loved Peter Marshall. He was, a, he was a, at one time a chaplain to the United States Senate. This is what he said. He said, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. We are to give proportionally. There's another principle. Not only are we to give proportional, but we are sometimes to give beyond what is proportionally ours. And that's what they did in Macedonia. They gave according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability. I guess the big question is, how do I know when that time comes for me to give beyond my ability? And I can't answer that for you. All I can tell you is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. The Lord may lay something on your heart for a specific project or a specific need, and you might say, this is, this is going to cost me a little bit more. I'm going beyond my proportion, my ability, but I feel it's from the Lord. Sometimes we are to do that. So we're getting a general description of, of what they were going through in Macedonia feeling crushed by life, deep poverty. And because of that, there's another word that is in these verses that seems totally out of place. It's the word joy. Joy. Did you notice that in verse 2? That in a great trial of affliction, here it is, the abundance of their joy. How do you get joy how do you get abundant joy when you have abundant affliction and abundant poverty? One word. Grace. Goes back to that word he uses three times. Grace, grace, grace. That's how you get it. So God has sort of funny arithmetic. Have you noticed that? Doesn't seem to make sense. I'm going to throw this little um, uh, formula up. We'll, we'll begin, first of all, with... Give it to me, give it to me. Thank you. Great affliction. Let's begin there. You've got great affliction. Some of you go, that's me. I've got great affliction. I've been going through a horrible time the last several months. So great affliction. Let's add something to that. Plus deep poverty. You're going, yep, you're speaking my language. This whole COVID thing has brought me deep affliction and poverty. But let's add something else to that. Plus grace. 
Now that is the game changer. When you add to great affliction and deep poverty grace, that equals joy and generosity. That is what Paul is saying in these verses. They're going through great affliction. They have deep poverty, but they are expressing an abundance of joy and giving beyond their ability. The riches, verse 2, the riches of their liberality. Now, that's a paradox. Victor Hugo said, as the purse is emptied, the heart is filled Jesus said it better. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So we give proportionally. Sometimes we give beyond the proportion. And that's between you and God. Only between you and God. You remember how Jesus was one day in the temple courts. And he was just watching people as they gave their offerings. And he noticed the people that were wealthy give very ostentatiously letting people know that they have given this large amount. And yet, because they were so wealthy, they would never miss this large amount. Then he noticed a widow. And you know the story of the widow's mite. So she put in two mites. Now, a mite is about three-eighths of one cent. In terms of bottom-line giving, she didn't give much. But in proportion to what she had, she gave it all. And Jesus made note of that. It's not the amount. It's something deeper than that. So Jesus put it this way. She put in more than all of them. For these all out of their abundance put in offerings to God. But she out of her poverty put in everything. In other words, here's a gal who gave, but when she gave just a little amount, ooh, that cost her a lot. That cost her a lot. In the Old Testament, David wanted to build a temple for God. So he secured some land. The man who owned a plot of land, when he found out that David wanted to build a temple for God, was offering the land for free. He said, David, you're David, first of all. And you're doing this for God. That's a noble cause. I'm going to donate the land to you. David says, no, no, no. I'll pay you full price. The guy says, no, I insist. I'm going to give you this land. David said back to him, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Isn't that an interesting principle? I'm not going to give unless it costs me something. Seems to be a pattern. Don't exactly know why it is, but uh, people who research this have discovered that uh, folks that have less income are often more generous than those who have a lot of income. In fact, what I read, and I'll share it with you, people making $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give than someone making an annual income of $75,000. Eight times more likely to give. And I, I think there is a principle, like we saw in the video, if you can't do it when you have a little, you won't do it when you have more. Um, if you want a good book on the subject, it's by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn has given the Christian world many good books. The best one on heaven I've ever read was by Randy Alcorn. 
Uh, he wrote a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He points out in the book that uh, in the Old Testament, there was a requirement of a percentage. What was that percentage in the Old Testament? Ten percent. It's called the tithe. That's an Old Testament construct. What Alcorn says is that's Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, it's not the same. That percentage isn't a requirement because we are stewards of all the resources that God puts in our hands. In other words, everything we have belongs to Him. Ten percent, says Alcorn, is just the starting point. I want you to listen to his rationale or see it. We'll put it on the screen. Being under grace does not mean living by lower standards than the law. Christ systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, and the taking of oaths and made it clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees. That's basically the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. He never lowered the bar. He always raised it. But he also empowers us Here's the word, by His grace, He empowers us by His grace to jump higher than the law demands. Let me take you to a third aspect of generosity. Generosity is volitional. Look at verse 3 again. I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Now, when you read freely willing, do you get the idea that Paul has their arm behind their back, twisting it, going, come on, give. Oh, okay, okay. Now, it sounds exactly the opposite. They freely gave. But look at the next verse. Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So the giving wasn't compulsory. It was completely voluntary. They didn't do it because they had to. They did it because... They wanted to. They asked to. Paul didn't guilt them into it. Paul didn't beg them to do it. They begged Paul to do it. Did you hear that? They begged Paul, please, Paul, take this money. We want to be a part of it. That's the idea of verse 4, imploring us with much urgency. When was the last time you heard of Christians begging to get an offering taken? I can only think of one in my life. I had this experience years ago. We had first started the church and started to grow, and, you know, we have never received a formal offering we, for, our, for the church. We just have boxes around. We let people know where, where the boxes are. Well, one Sunday, um, we forgot to announce the agape boxes. And so we went from music into a few announcements, didn't announce that, just went into the message, and I closed with an amen, and that was it. Well, out of the corner of my eye, this dear saint, who was a part of our fellowship at the time, I'll never forget her, loved her, Mary Earl Wall. I see her coming to me, and she didn't look happy. Out of the corner of my eye, and she walks right up to me, puts her finger on my chest, and said, you robbed me of an opportunity. I said, excuse me? She goes, you didn't announce the offering today. You didn't announce the agape boxes. She goes, young man, I want you to know. She called me a young man. That's how long ago it was. I want you to know that 
I see the offering as an opportunity for me to worship. And you took that away from me by not announcing it. I said, okay, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again, I promise. But she got it. She understood what Paul was trying to say here. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background for these verses to make sense. Paul began his collection for the church in Jerusalem in Galatia. So we don't have a map, but Galatia is like central Turkey today. The church is the region of Galatia. Paul began uh, receiving offerings from churches in Galatia. Then he moved westward toward Macedonia and then uh, Achaia and then uh, Greece. And he would take all of those monies and bring them to Jerusalem. Apparently, by the time he gets to Macedonia and he sees the condition of the church in Macedonia, he feels like, I can't take an offering from these people. They're in a great trial of affliction. They're experiencing deep poverty. If I take an offering from them, they're going to say, why don't you take an offering for us? So apparently he didn't even mention it. Well, they found out about the collection Paul was taking, and they came to him and implored him with great urgency that they could be a part of it. That's the idea of that verse. So for them, getting involved in a financial offering was not a problem to be avoided. To them, it was a privilege to be desired. So that's why when we get to chapter 9, the very next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul gives this principle. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And by now you know the word is hilaros. God loves a hilarious giver. That's freely willing. That's volitional. That's because you want to do it. Do it as you purpose in your heart so that you can do it hilariously. You can do it freely. You can do it with joy. But I love that statement, God loves a cheerful giver. Let's just sort of emblematically place that over today. God loves a cheerful giver. We know God loves the world. He loves everybody. But it, it seems that God has a special love in His heart for those who have generous hearts toward others. And lest you think this is a, a New Testament idea, not an Old Testament idea, you would be wrong. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, God said, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. This brings us to the fourth and final aspect of generosity, and that is generosity is consequential. Now, I want you to see verse 5. This is where we'll close. And not only as we had hoped... But they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. See, the Macedonians gave far more than money. They gave themselves. They dedicated themselves first to God, then to Paul and his missionary team to get involved. And here's the principle. You can't give your substance to the purpose of God until you first give yourself to the person of God. You can't give your substance to the purpose of God till you first give yourself 
to the person of God. One flows from the other. So if God has you, then God has your wallet. Right? Does that make sense? If God has you, then God has your wallet. If God has you, then God has your bank account. If God has you, then God has all your investments. If God has you, then you don't mind this sermon. In fact, you welcome it. Because if God has you, then God has all of you, not just 10% of you, all of you. God had all of them. They had given themselves to Him. I want to close with um, something John Wesley wrote, and we'll put this up and you can see it. John Wesley said, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. You know what? That's you. You have done that repeatedly over and over again. If we say there's something going on in Lebanon, we need to take money for it. There's something going on with the poor in this city. You step up to the plate. You are always looking for ways to spread God's kingdom. Thank you for that. Father, thank you for this fellowship, for those who attend it, for those who contribute to it. These are people who have given themselves to you first. And in giving themselves to you, they realize everything they have belongs to you, and it's a matter of how you wish for them to steward it at that time. Um, we pray, and I pray, Lord, in closing for, for them, for their situations. I don't know what each one is in particular, but I have a hunch that some are going through a great trial of affliction, even deep poverty. And so to talk about a message like this, uh, must have been how Paul felt when he didn't want to bring it up to the Macedonians. But Lord, there is a joy when we decide to partner with you in seeing a person, a brother or sister, somebody who has a need or an opportunity to further the gospel. Thank you for the joy, the privilege, at whatever level to get involved in your great enterprise called the gospel. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and celebrate together. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church/give. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.